Our text for today comes from Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right. All right. Well, welcome to church. Today we are talking about marriage. Marriage. And this passage from Genesis would be really, really nice, wouldn't it? If that's what it was like, if that was our shared experience of marriage. No shame, no guilt, no judgment, no self-consciousness, no fear of abandonment or rejection, no wandering eye, no cell phones to distract us during a date, right? Just two whole people, two complete people, committed to one another with a mandate to flourish under the gracious hand and love of God. This is the picture that the Bible gives us of the ideal human marriage, the perfect example of this human relationship. The first marriage, a covenantal union of two people in an honor-based, equitable, no-shame relationship. An honor-based, equitable, no-shame relationship. And it's beautiful, isn't it? When the first man, in Hebrew, what's called the Adam, first sees the woman in verse 23, he springs into a kind of spontaneous Hebrew poem where he honors her as his equal. And in the Hebrew, he actually exclaims at the beginning of this poem, at last, bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. It's perfect. It's almost unfair, actually. Not only are these two emotionally and physically naked and experience no shame, but they also have immediate access to romantic poetry, just like off the top of their head. It's Shakespeare-level iambic pentameter, right? Just immediately. And we look at this ideal marriage, and we hold it up next to our current state of marriage in our culture, and it's pretty easy to see that one of these things is not like the other. For most of our lived experience, for most of us, our lived experience of marriage is a far cry from the ideal laid out at the beginning of the Bible, isn't it? Many in our popular culture paint a fairly grim picture of marriage. You know, with rates of divorce and spousal abuse remaining high, people are delaying, avoiding, postponing marriage, sometimes indefinitely choosing to see cohabitation as a safer and better option. And given that lived-in experience that many of us have, it makes sense a little bit. You know, chances are many of us in this room have experienced or are currently experiencing some level of pain and difficulty that broken or dysfunctional marriages can bring. 
Some of us have been marked as children by broken marriages. Maybe you grew up as a child of divorce. I grew up in the late 80s and early 90s where it seemed like nearly every friend I had had divorced parents. Others of us have experienced this extreme pain and confusion of divorce ourselves. That we've, ex- we've seen it manifest in our own lives and the confusion and the struggle that that brings. Still others of you may be struggling internally here this morning with some aspect of your own marriage. And you're wondering just like, how do I navigate this interesting, difficult space? But what I know this morning is that no matter where you are on this spectrum, no matter what's happening in your mind, in your heart, in and around this issue of marriage, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Because I think, I believe, that God wants to speak something to us today about the significance of marriage and his power to heal marriages in the midst of a broken world. You know, uh, no matter where you are on that spectrum, whether you're unmarried, divorced, remarried, a child of a divorce, in a difficult or happy marital situation right now, there, there is this one abiding truth this morning, that God's love is present, that his grace is present, that, that his love streams towards us as a kind of free gift that we can't get away from. And no matter who you are or what you think you've done or how worthy you think you are or are not, you are, uh, you are a candidate for the love of God. And I want to be able to have this conversation this morning in a spirit of grace, but also in a spirit of truth. Because we know when it comes to this issue of marriages, all of us, all of us have been affected in some way. We've had a positive experience or a negative experience. We have, uh, we have seen the woundedness that is created when, when marriage breaks down or fizzles out. And we want to talk about it. We want to talk about it this morning. But that, that difficulty that we've all experienced in our own lives or we've seen experienced in the lives of others, the difficulty that occurs in marriage that we see inflicted on our culture begs the question, doesn't it? What do we do with this version, this, this, biblic- this uh, Genesis 2 version of marriage? When the Bible paints this beautiful picture of two people living in a perfect union, like, what do we do with it? Are we just supposed to discard it as a kind of fairy tale, right? Something like Sleeping Beauty or Snow White, something like that. We all were sitting there reading this going, yeah, I know, but like at 12 o'clock, this thing turns into a pumpkin, right? (laughs) Is this a too-good-to-be-true story that none of us are ever really going to be able to access? Or, or, is this story of the first marriage hardwired into the fabric of creation? Is there something about it that is that God has intended for us to have access to? Is this story, however imperfectly it will be imported into our lives, an invitation of God to participate in? Is God inviting us to participate in this story? And the question is, in short, is there hope? Is there hope? 
is there hope that we can take the scriptures at their word? That for those of us who are called to marriage, there is an immensely beautiful possibility that our marriages are not simply relationships that must be endured, but can, in some significantly spiritual way, be relationships that produce environments of blessing. So that's what we're going to explore today. That's what we're going to look at. I want to look at the biblical vision of what marriage, of what that marriage relationship is all about. And then we want to create, at the end of service, some space to pray. Some space to pray for marriages this morning. I am believing that it's going to be a significant morning for some of us. So, in order to understand the biblical vision of marriage, I think we need to work our way through three ideas or three words this morning. And those three words are blessing, covenant, and covering. Blessing, covenant, and covering. So if you're taking notes, you can write those three words down. And if you don't write anything else, when you look back at your notes in five years, you won't remember what we talked about. So first, blessing. My wife and Ashley and I served under a pastor right after we got married who spoke about marriage a lot. It seemed like almost every quarter, about once a quarter, he gave a message on marriage. And we came to realize that part of the reason that he preached so often about marriage was that his marriage was not necessarily in a great place. And he was literally preaching to himself, right? Uh, And one of the things that always kind of spilled out of him as he preached regularly about marriage was that marriage was challenging. Marriage was inherently challenging. He had this implicit vision of marriage that said something along the lines of, gosh, marriage is difficult, but there is blessing involved. And while I understood why he felt that way, Ashley and I always thought that his vision of marriage was a little bit of a downer, (laughs) to be honest with you. Because there was so much about marriage at that time and continues to be so much about marriage that was beautiful to us. And even though we had, we've been married for nine years now, which isn't that long compared to many of you, at, and at this point we understand some of the challenges in being married, I still feel like he was being a downer. <laughs> and, and I just want to turn the idea, or his idea, around on its head. I just want to flip the, the equation, as it were. And say it this way, marriage is a blessing, and there is sometimes difficulty. It seems like a subtle difference, doesn't it? But I think it's a meaningful shift. A shift of mind and, and of heart that sees first and foremost the inherent blessing of marriage and not the inherent difficulty. Now, this formulation doesn't turn a blind eye to the difficulty or to the struggle, but understands that marriage was designed to be a blessing. It was designed to be a blessing and understands that blessing as a vital component of what it means to be a married person. And when the scriptures talk about the, mari- the blessing that is involved in marriage, it really talks about two kinds of blessings that flow through marriage. The first is the blessing of significant friendship and belonging. The blessing of significant friendship and belonging. This is about the blessing Uh, that marriage can and should be, the blessing that marriage can and should be between the two people who are married. Now, this shouldn't be uh, too much of a surprise, but there should be a blessing involved when two people come together in union and are married. After God, uh, uh, 
when God speaks to Adam in Genesis 2, 18, he says this, the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. You know, if you are a married person in this room, your spouse is supposed to be your most intimate and encouraging friend. That's the intended purpose. The person you feel safest with in all the world. In verse 25 of Genesis 2, Adam and his wife are described as being naked, yet feeling no shame. Now, you could, you could consider this passage, you could interpret it to be, to be about physical intimacy, but I actually think that's a secondary interpretation of this passage. The nakedness and the lack of shame that's described in this passage is, I think, actually about, uh, is about an intimate emotional relationship. That it's about being seen for who you really are, yet still being accepted and loved. Marriage between two people is about personal fulfillment. It is. And companionship. And our marriages can and should be a blessing to us in this way. If you are a married person, you can't find all your value and worth in that other person. You can't worship them. You must find the majority of your value and worth in the person of Jesus and worship him. But God most certainly creates marriage to be a safe haven of deep relationship and belonging. This is why he created it. Last week, we talked about friendship, if you were with us. Uh, and I'm reminded of C.S. Lewis, who points out that, a good, that in a good marriage, it finds its truest grounding and support, not in romantic love, what he, well, the Greek word is eros love, but in friendship, in friendship. You see, passionate kind of romantic love is good and necessary within a healthy marriage, but romance cannot sustain a marriage over the long run, can it? Anybody who's married, been married for like 15 seconds knows this. Th and this is actually a big part of the problem with the way our culture thinks about first impressions in, in relationships. Because in our culture, the, the, the priority, the thing that's put first, is the physical relationship, the sexual connection, right? You know, that is not only outside God's intended pattern for the way in which we should engage in romantic relationships, but it also prioritizes the romantic or the passionate over the relational. Do you see that? And I think it is, this is part of the reason why the Christian idea of restraining sexual intimacy until after the commitment of marriage is so very wise because it allows for a friendship to be formed long before sex ever comes into the equation. And if friendship is the bedrock of a relationship and it is built up over time and strengthened and worked on, even if the flames of romance go away from time to time, which they will, at least you're laying in bed next to somebody you like, right? Right? It's an important thing. But if you don't like the person and there's no romance, that's a problem, right? That's the quickest way to see our marriages become a burden and not a blessing. And, it's, and, a, and a marriage is supposed to be a good and beautiful thing that fulfills and uplifts us. Not an ultimate thing, not something to worship, not someone to worship, but a very good thing nonetheless. And that is the first blessing of marriage. But there's another and possibly more important blessing that flows through marriage. And that is the blessing that flows through our marriages to the world. 
a blessing that flows through our marriage to the world. And the Bible talks about this a lot. God says to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply. Notice that God says here that marriage is a productive thing, something that blesses, something that multiplies, something that produces. Now, the obvious implications of this passage is having children, right? Mother Teresa was speaking with a a young, very passionate man one time who asked her, how do I change the world? And her response to him was, go home and love your family. Go home and love your family. So it is very true that fostering a healthy family, raising healthy, other-centered kids is one of the best ways we can bless the world. And being a parent is one of the highest callings we can receive. But I also think that a healthy marriage should, in and of itself, be a kind of bedrock of goodness and blessing for the world, even apart from having children. Meaning that a healthy marriage will inevitably be a blessing to those who come into contact with it. My my grandparents have this kind of marriage, and we were with them this weekend, and we have a photo, I think. That is uh, all of my grandparents' great-grandchildren, minus one. The kid with the hair that looks like doll hair, his name is Graham. Uh, If you touch his hair, it feels fake, and when he's happy, he screams like a pterodactyl. It's wonderful. (laughs) But but he's not even my kid. Uh, but, uh, But that's them, right? There's a legacy, there's a legacy of blessing there of my, my grandparents' great-grandchildren, right? And my grandparents were there. We just didn't take a picture of them. Uh, but while this is a legacy of blessing that my grandparents have passed down to their great-grandchildren that we're very thankful for in, this, in our family, this is not the only way that their union, my grandparents' union, has blessed other people. They've blessed countless people just through the fact that they are a married Married people moving through the world, serving God. Uh, it is not only their children who bless the world, but it has actually been their marriage as they've served in the church, as they've loved people, as they've op- opened their home up as a hospitable place for broken people. There's all of these ways that when two people come together in a marriage, they are able to bless the world. They are able to be productive. They are able to be a kind of highway for the grace of God, the love of God that runs through them and out into their community. It's a beautiful thing, and it's why marriage was created. While marriage can and should be a blessing to you and to me, the people who are in the marriages, right? Not that I'm married to you. I'm married to that lady. But... uh, But the, the primary purpose of our marriages is to be a kind of co- a, a community, a, a little mini community of blessing out into the world. This is the purpose of marriage, to bless many people. And for married people who have not yet or are not able to have kids, their relationship is still meant to be a conduit of this type of blessing, Right? We know that there are people in our world who are unable to have children, and they often feel a kind of weight associated with that. But what we know from the scriptures is regardless of that aspect of marriage, marriage is still a blessing to the world. It's still meant to be a conduit of grace and love. It's still meant to be a communicator of what God's love looks like to the world. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul is talking to the Ephesians church, and he's talking to them about marriage. And after he gets done with a little excursus about marriage and the way it should be structured, he says this, that the, 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 the thing he was just talking about, that the marriages that he was just describing, is really just one big analogy for the relationship between Christ and his church. 
Meaning that for Paul, marriage is meant to be a kind of living picture of God's love, right? For people uh, to see, for, to put on display of the kind of self-giving, self-sacrificial nature of God. Marriage is meant to be a blessing in this way. And we can't simply see it as just a legal agreement or a tax break. God has created marriage to be this way that his love is communicated to the world. And when our marriages are functioning rightly, they become avenues of God's grace. Little pictures, little, little living pictures of how God loves us. Now that happens imperfectly, right? Because none of us is perfect. But that was the intended purpose. And if we want to bless our families, if we want to bless our communities, God says, build healthy marriages. And by committing to the health of your marriage, just know that it is about more than just you, which is so nice, right? It will be about your children and your neighbors and your extended family and this church if we build healthy marriages. And the reason, I think, the reason that marriages can be such a blessing to the world is found in the third word that we're looking at today. It's found in this idea that marriage is a covenant. Is a covenant. Now, a covenant is an old word, isn't it? Covenant is an old word that we sometimes think just means a legal agreement, but it is much more than a legal agreement. A covenant is a kind of promise that is made before God within what the pastor Tim Keller calls a framework of binding obligation. Now I know what you're thinking. You're thinking framework of binding obligation is literally the four most exciting words that have ever been put next to one another and used to describe marriage in your life. Nothing says we're going to have a good time like framework of binding obligation. <laughs> but if the phrase sounds strange to you, I just want to draw your attention to the last uh, wedding that you ever went to. Uh, when both the bride and the groom were making vows to one another before God. Vows like, I promise to love, honor, and cherish. Vows like, forsaking all others and keeping myself only for you. What are those promises if not a, a framework of binding obligation, right? A vow is simply a promise, a framework that gives structure and significance to a relationship. And when you hear those vows spoken between a bride and a groom at a, at a wedding, none of us are sitting in the audience going, how controlling they're being. This is inappropriate, right? This is never going to work, right? That's not what we say when we hear that. When we hear that, we think that's exactly what those two people are supposed to be doing because that is the very nature of love, right? To make and keep promises, to create structures, to create guardrails. If you've ever, if you've ever bowled, right, you get the bumpers, right, and you put them out. I'm horrible at bowling. I love bumpers. G.K. <laughs> Chesterton, uh, the 20th century Christian thinker and writer, uh, says that love is always in the business of making these kinds of promises, is always curtailing itself in a way, creating structures within which love can flourish. You, uh, look at any pair of 13-year-olds who are in love for the first time, and what are they doing? They're making promises to one another, aren't they? I'm going to love you forever. I'm not going to love anybody else, just you. And then two weeks later, right, like, 
But this is what love does. This is the natural way that love functions. It wants to create boundaries. It wants to create borders. It wants to create structures in order for love to flourish. This just seems to be hardwired into the nature of what it means to love someone. It is only as we get older and adults become more and more jaded that we begin to hedge our bets, right? And we create nonsense words like conscious uncoupling, and we think that this will in some way protect us or enrich our experience of love when it will not. And this covenant promising language, this language of covenant, this language of binding obligation is all over marriage, and it's actually all over the Bible. If you read the Bible, God is always saying this phrase to the people of Israel. He says, he reiterates it over and over again. I will be their people, I will be their God, and they will be my people. I will be their God, and they will be my people. It sounds a lot like a vow, doesn't it? And one of the best examples of a framework of binding obligation is found in the covenant that God makes with Israel after they had been led out of captivity in Egypt. You know this story. We call this uh, framework of binding obligation the Ten Commandments, right? And, they, and when we think of them, we think of them as just being rules to follow, things that we kind of just have to do because God says we have to do them, and if we don't do them, we're going to get in trouble. But they were not seen like that in the Old Testament. They were seen as kind of guidelines or a mutual vow taken by the people before God in this relationship, right? And the very first commandment is what? You shall have no other gods before me. You see, it's marriage language, isn't it? It's covenant language. It sounds a lot like forsaking all others and keeping myself only for you, doesn't it? That's what it sounds like. Now, this is where the idea of covenant, I think, gets really cool this morning. There is a binding obligation, right, that gives parameters or gives guidelines to the vows we make within the context of love. But a covenant is just not, is not only about the guardrails. It's not only about the guidelines. It's not only about the binding obligation. The thing that makes a covenant a covenant in the realest sense of the term is that a covenant is made before God. In a covenant, God is an active party, a participant in that promise. Think about the covenants that God makes with Abraham, with Moses, with David. God makes a promise in those relationships also, doesn't he? And this is what makes the idea of, that marriage is a, cover, uh, is a covenant so powerful and important. Because God has promised that if a married couple are willing to let him in, right, he will be with them. He will be with them. God will be present in their marriage in some mysterious and practical way. God will be a kind of covering over their mutual relationship, over their marital relationship. Now, I don't know if any of you have ever been to a Jewish wedding before, but if you ever go to one or you look up one on the internet after this because you're interested, you'll see something interesting, and we actually have a picture of it up on the screen here. There it is. This is called, and I will not pronounce it correctly because I don't do Hebrew very well, but this is called a chupa, 
right? I think we have it spelled there as well. But it's C H U P P A H. And, it, and all this is is a Jewish prayer shawl that has been tied on four corners to four poles. And this chuppah forms a kind of canopy or covering over the heads of the bride and groom as they, uh, as they uh, recite their vows. Now, Christians basically have a similar thing. When we get married in a church, we don't often do it. But anytime uh, Christians get married outside, very often we have an altar or an arbor over their head, kind of symbolizing the same thing. But this covering is meant to symbolize the presence of God. The presence of God hovering over this marriage. It signifies to the couple and to everyone who is watching that being married, that this couple is being married under the presence of God. That God is a kind of active participant in their ceremony. And it is meant to draw minds back to the stories of the Old Testament where the Spirit of God hovered over the people as they received the commandments on Mount Sinai, as the presence of God hovered over and guided the people of Israel as they traveled through the wilderness, led by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. You see, this covering is meant to remind the couple that they are not alone, that they're in a covenant, that their marriage isn't only about them, but that God is actually an active participant in their marriage, hovering over them, leading them, guiding and caring for them within the covenant of marriage. And when we say that marriage is a covenant, this is what we mean. That That the two people involved in it are not alone. They are not left to their own devices. They are not just two broken people slammed together in a messy relationship trying to make it. They are rather two people in a covenant with God over their heads, leading them, guiding them, supporting them, cheering for them, wanting them to succeed. This is what it means to be in a marriage. This is what it means to be in a covenant in which God is a participant. And what an encouraging thought that is for us this morning. If the band could come up. What an encouraging thought that for those of us who are married, we are not alone. I don't know about you, but sometimes Ashley and I look at each other. Maybe we've had a stressful day. Maybe we're, we're going through something. Sometimes we look at each other and go, like, who's going to solve this, right? <laughs> like, is, it, is it you or me? Like, I don't know if either of us have the resource to get this thing taken care of, right? But in the covenant of marriage, two people who have invited God into that relationship are not alone. We stand over, we, uh, God, we stand under the covering of God. We stand under the canopy of his love and support. We are uplifted and led and encouraged by the, lo- the loving hand of a God who wants our marriages to succeed more than we do. This is what it means to be in a covenant. 
And this morning, I don't know where all of us are, obviously. I don't know where any of us are in our heads this morning. I don't know if you came into this place feeling happy about marriage. I don't know if you came into this place struggling in your marriage. I don't know if you came into this place not believing that marriage was even a viable option for you, like it's never going to happen. I don't know what any of our relationships to this covenant is this morning. But what I know, what I know is that God is for marriages. He wants to see them flourish. He wants to see us step into everything he has created them to be. He wants them to be a blessing to us and to the world. He wants them to be a signpost pointing to his love and goodness. He wants them to be such a loving and creative union that people are drawn to him when they see the love that is in a covenant marriage. It's a kind of beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. But it can seem very far off at times, can't it? It can seem very far off. And this morning, what we want to do is just carve out some time to pray, to pray together as a church. Now, over the last couple of weeks, uh, we've been uh, praying together uh, about starting a prayer team, a prayer team. And so today is the first day that we are going to start doing that. We have a number of people in our church who feel a burden to, uh, to partner with you in prayer. And uh, every Sunday from here on out, we're going to, at, sometimes during the service, sometimes just at the conclu uh, conclusion of service, uh, there's going to be people here up at the front who are just willing to pray for you, just willing to pray for you, to partner with you in prayer, to bear burdens with you. And this morning, we wanted to kick it off as we, pray, as we pray for marriages, as we pray for marriages this morning. And so if the prayer team could just come up, that'd be great on either side. I just, we have time. I've been, this has been a, uh, a quick message. We just want to create some space to pray for marriages this morning. For if you're a married couple and you're here and you're struggling, Let's invite God into that experience. Let's invite God into that experience because he wants to be there with you. If you're a married person in this place today and everything's great, but you want to, uh, to build a, a, a stronger sense of God's presence in the midst of your marriage, let's pray. If you're in this place and you're, and you're thinking about the fact that you, maybe your parents are going through a struggle or you want to pray for somebody you know whose marriage is in trouble, this is a great time to do it. The truth of the matter is, is that the covenant of marriage, the covenant of marriage is an invitation, is a gift that God gives us and is an invitation for us to invite God into our situation, into our marriages, into our relationships. And this morning, we just want to free up space to do that. So the band's just going to play quietly for a few minutes. And I just want to encourage you. I just want to encourage you. If there's anything you have to pray about this morning, if, if you want to pray for your marriage, uh, these people are trained, uh, they're prepared, and they're willing to pray with you. And so just as we take a few moments this morning, we just want to create some space for the Spirit to have its way, for the Spirit to have its way. So let's pray. I'll pray here. And then... We'll just enter a, time, a ministry time. The band will play. We can sing some songs and we can pray together. Father, we love you. 
And we thank you so much for this vision of marriage that you've given us in the scriptures. We thank you so much that you have not left us alone in our marriages, God, but rather that you, uh, you lead and guide us. You are intimately involved in our marriages and that you, God, have promised to be with us. Father, we pray that you would upbuild and encourage marriages in this place today. We pray that we would come to you with, with boldness and with truth and that you would see and know us. And we pray it all in the name of Jesus. 